This is Science Friday. I'm Ira Flato. Last week, a 6.8 magnitude earthquake struck Morocco's high Atlas Mountains. In this devastating disaster, thousands of people were killed, thousands more were injured or are still missing. What's especially horrifying about earthquakes is there's no way to know when they'll strike. You know, scientists have been trying for years to look for signs before a strike, but nothing dependable yet. So what is the science behind the earthquake in Morocco, and are we any closer to predicting earthquakes? And if not, how do we prepare ourselves? My next guest has been reporting on this earthquake, Dr. Robin George Andrews, volcanologist and science journalist based in the UK. Robin, thanks for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me. All right. Can you walk us through Earthquakes 101? What are they? How do they happen? What's going on in this one? Yeah, so earthquakes are, um, they're kind of like the ambushes of the natural world. Normally, when something is happening in nature, you at least get some sense that it's on its way or it's there's some precursory signal. Earthquakes, they, they kind of just happen. And an earthquake can happen anywhere where you have a fault line. And a fault line is basically just a sort of rupture in Earth's crust, um, sometimes a bit deeper, and faults move side to side uh, or up and down or a combination of both or apart sometimes. And in, in any of these scenarios, if that fault moves quite suddenly, you can get quite a powerful earthquake because earthquakes happen all the time. An earthquake is just when the ground is shaking. But a powerful earthquake, the things that we are concerned about are when a fault jolts forwards, up, down, sideways, in one way or the other. And depending on the size of this jolt and the energy released, you can get either a, an earthquake that just rattles things on a shelf or you can destroy a city. You know, I have been following earthquake news for quite some time, and I don't recall ever hearing of another big earthquake like this in Morocco. Yeah, so Morocco... Um, Morocco is a seismically active part of the world. Um, it's just a little different from the ones we normally think of. Like, like California is a great example. California is pretty much smack bang on a, on a, on a major tectonic boundary. And as a result, there's quite a lot of movement. You get quite a lot of earthquakes. There's a potential for quite big earthquakes. So Morocco sits on the African, or as some people call it, the Nubian plate. And just above it, Europe sits on the Eurasian plate. They move quite slowly relative to each other. So when you get a slow moving fault, you can get earthquakes, but it, you don't get large earthquakes because you're not really building up stress. Nothing is moving quickly, then getting caught and then jolting forwards. So a large earthquakes have happened. In 1960, for example, there was a, the Agadir earthquake. It killed about 12,000 people. So earthquakes aren't in, uncommon, but large earthquakes are relatively rare in Morocco. Yeah. So, so how did the uh, this one happen? In particular, you described a lot of different things that could go on. What specifically happened on the earth beneath our feet in this one? So yeah, this one was really tricky to earthquake scientists to work out. They're still trying to kind of pit it down. Uh, I mean, one of the major surprises is the location of the earthquake. So the, the seismic hazards was thought to be highest in the north of the country near the coastline because that's near the tectonic plate boundary that's where you'd expect most of the pressure to be building up and then released um this actually happened in sort of central ish part of the country it's kind of an odd shape the other thing is the fault networks around these mountains the high atlas mountains are not as well known as others some are really old um some are some date back to Pangaea, you know, the supercontinent that was around at the time of the dinosaurs, they're hundreds of millions of years old. Some of these faults were, were, you know, suspected to not have moved for eons, you know, maybe before humans even evolved kind of level. And it's, it's really hard to tell if a fault has moved 
that far back in the past. You know, the evidence is really hard. So in this case, what looks like happened was a very, very sleepy fall, one that most people didn't have their eye on, thought was inactive, seems to be the one that kind of jolted forwards and it just happened to jolt forward in a in an incredibly potent way and it generated a lot of shaking, you know, so much so that people felt it in Lisbon. Yeah. And how deep inside the earth does this earthquake originate? So this one was incredibly shallow. So sometimes earthquakes can happen like hundreds of kilometers deep. They're kind of rare in terms of the ones that affect humans, but they can. But this one was, you know, I think it was 26 kilometers. So, um, you know, really just a few miles beneath the surface in a way. And generally, when you get a shallow earthquake, more of that energy kind of gets transferred to the surface. Like the, the, the motions underground are coupled with the surface a lot more rigidly often so the shaking was a lot more intense because of the the shallowness of the earthquake right. so that that right. was unfortunate how do you, how do you know how deep an earthquake is how do how does how, how does science estimate that so this is so this is you know we live in kind of a wondrous age where a lot of science seems kind of magic even to me who's trained in this sort of stuff <laughs> um seismology is a relatively young science and it essentially is listening for the you know, it's picking up on the vibrations that are unleashed by earthquakes, and they come in different flavors. And scientists, a hundred years ago, were barely beginning to understand like how to use these seismic waves to see into the earth to some degree. You know, it was, but in that time, scientists have managed to, you know, use seismometers all over the world in the area. You know, they've used the motion of the ground with satellites in space. You know, they you could, they can listen to this kind of symphony of seismic music that's coming from the earth and match it up with ground movement they see at the surface, and they can use that to very accurately pinpoint not only how deep the earthquake was, but actually the specific fault that slipped kind of thing. So it's all in retrospect. It's all like after it happens, which is kind of part of the problem. But the fact that it can be done with this precision does give you kind of some optimism for where the field will go in the future. Yeah. There's a huge difference in this case about how Marrakesh fared versus the villages in the High Atlas Mountains faring, right? Yeah, and this is one of this is something that the seismologists often tell me is like earthquakes don't kill people, buildings kill people. And, you know, that's broadly true, really. I mean, it's the fact that we live in certain areas that have seismic hazards is the thing that makes the hazard. Um, and a lot of deaths are down to bad building kind of construction. Like if you live in an area that has a seismic hazard, ideally there should be funding to make your buildings kind of resist the earthquake now no building can like resist any earthquake but japan's a great example you know i've been in tokyo for it when there have been some fairly modest magnitude earthquakes and a lot of the skyscrapers there actually sway and wobble a bit and it's because they're swaying with the motion of the ground which stops them snapping and breaking whereas um in marrakesh uh, some of the newer buildings kind of resisted the quake a bit more it, it helped that the epicenter was also a bit far away but the parts of the old town um, have no structures designed to resist earthquakes. So that suffered a lot more damage. And in the High Atlas Mountains, like whole villages have been raised to the ground. I've been, you know, I've enjoyed visiting Morocco and I've been to these mountains and, and the villages there are built kind of, you know, it's like mud brick construction, uh, unreinforced masonry. Not only are they in valleys, but they're also on the slopes of these mountains. And it's just, you know, it's exactly the kind of structure that unfortunately stands no chance you know you can drop to the floor duck and cover all you like but when your entire building is basically becoming a fluid um there's there's nothing you can do really so 
it's unsurprising that that's where most of the damage was. It didn't help that the epicenter of the earthquake was basically in that area, but it doesn't make it any less tragic. You know, it, entire villages have been obliterated, which is not something that is it, it's quite unfathomable, right. yeah. really. In a story in The Atlantic, you wrote that earthquakes carry their own trauma. What do you mean by that? Yeah, so like every disaster has trauma, but there's something uniquely nightmarish about earthquakes. Not not that it's worse than something else, but it's just a very, for example, a hurricane you can see coming. You can even forecast these things. A volcano, a volcano can explode without warning, but almost all volcanoes give out some warning you know, they change shape, they they heat up, they give off a certain kind of gas, they kind of splutter and you get earthquakes symbolizing the movement of magma. Even a tsunami that's rushing across the ocean, it takes long enough now that with modern early warning networks, people can actually do something about it. An earthquake is almost like it's everywhere all at once around you. Everything you take for granted that you think is like a permanent structure from roads to buildings, you know, like entire neighborhoods just vanish. Um, and the only thing I can think that kind of compares to is it's like a nuclear bomb, really. It's like a, a giant kind of explosion of energy. The physics are quite different, but yeah. it feels yeah. deific somehow. Like it's even with all the science of understanding how earthquakes work, when, it, when an entire city of entire villages can just be like disappeared with no advance warning, crucially, it it just feels, yeah, particularly nightmarish, really. That's just terror and horror. You talked about the frustration of not understanding yet how to determine whether an earthquake can happen. Tell me about where we stand in that effort to try to predict earthquakes. Yeah, so we stand, or rather the earthquake scientists just, I wouldn't say they're a square one, but in terms of like prediction, like prediction requires three things. You need to know exactly where an earthquake is going to happen next. You need to know how powerful that will be. And you need to know exactly when it will happen. That's what defines earthquake prediction. Um, and it's currently impossible. Like there's there's not even like a famous paper where seismologists and geophysicists got together and they're like, oh, we think we found a precursor for all earthquakes. And then they tested it and it didn't quite work. That's just not, even that has not happened kind of thing. It's really difficult to find precursors. So much of the science is kind of retrospective. And even if scientists understand like, okay, this fault has a high seismic hazard because it hasn't ruptured in 400 years. And they can measure the amount of like pressure, essentially the tension building up on a fault. Um, you can actually measure these things, but that doesn't give you any way to say uh, in 10 days time, it will make the slip. The best scientists can do in some parts of the world is probabilistic forecasting. That's when you say, for example, the San Andreas fault, the USGS uh, say there's a, a, a relatively high chance. I can't remember the exact number, but it's a relatively high chance in the next 30 years or so, either San Francisco Bay Area or the Los Angeles area is going to experience a relatively powerful earthquake. But it's not clear how reliable those kind of forecasts are. And even if they are, like, what are you supposed to do about that? Apart from make sure your building codes are up to date, make sure people were, uh, you know, I've got the drop, cover, and hold on practice ready. I mean, that's important, but without knowing what the precursor signs to a major earthquake are, you know, they will always bring about brewing. Yeah. Yeah, but that's that's pretty important, as you say, because if you did have the right kinds of buildings, perhaps you wouldn't have such devastation like we're seeing now. Mm. Yeah, and it's, it's each situation is different, right? So parts of the West Coast in the US have like pretty good building regulations. I mean, it's, it's a bit patchworky, but it's better than a lot 
of places in the world. Like Japan's pretty good on this. As we saw in Turkey, you know, Turkey was like the almost the, the, the polar opposite of that. Not only were a lot of buildings in the affected regions not fitted or retrofitted for earthquake resistance, but systemic corruption in the construction industry and the increasingly authoritarian government meant that money and effort that was supposed to go towards making sure these buildings were earthquake resistant was not used kind of thing. So often the, the death toll is a lot higher than it needs to be because of building codes. But as you can see in the Morocco case, it's quite complicated. Like in Marrakesh, it would be a lot easier to kind of have a local government go, okay, we're going to make sure all buildings, even in the old part of the city, are going to be fitted to withstand earthquakes. But what do you do with scattered villages in the mountains? Like that's a lot more of a, that's a, that's a much bigger logistical headache to kind of get around. It's not impossible, but you know, there's no perfect scenario basically for this. This is Science Friday from WNYC Studios. In case you're just joining us, we're talking about the science of earthquakes. Well, if you're building a building from scratch, how do you make it earthquake resistant? So part one of the ways is like you make sure it sways with the motion of the ground. So earthquakes move, make the ground move broadly in two ways. They make the ground move up and down, which doesn't help. But the side to side motion is really problematic. I mean, that's the sort of thing that can kind of tear buildings apart. And then you get some seismic waves that cause other kind of vibrations. So it's hard to plan for all scenarios. But making sure it moves with the motion of the quake helps. Like a, a, an example of uh, one of a lot of the problems in Turkey is a lot of apartment buildings, building contractors saved costs by instead of having a really strong foundational base, like with really rigid pillars um, at the base of these buildings, they put a shop in and that required like knocking out a few of the kind of foundation pillars. So when the earthquake happens, the buildings just pancake down on themselves because of that kind of thing. So to, to actually make a building earthquake resistant is complicated, but it's not so complicated that it can't be done if governments are, and in some cases, private companies are willing to invest in doing it. You know, it's basically a question of what cost saving is worth the risk of losing a human life kind of thing. And I think many people would argue that, you know, no cost would be too high. With the rise of AI and, you know, all these other artificial intelligence technologies, do you think that AI might help? predict earthquakes or alert people sooner? I mean, so what AI is particularly good at is pattern recognition. It, it can do it tirelessly, and it's it's much better than humans at that kind of thing. So AI is already being used in seismology. It's tentatively being used in forecasting efforts, but really the main use right now is to map out fault networks in absolutely stunning resolution. And it, that helps. And, by, and it does that by essentially listening to the the entire sum of the seismic noise coming out of, for example, California. And there's a lot of seismic uh, noise in California, not just from earthquakes, but from traffic, from, you know, people walking about, from Taylor Swift gigs, you know, it's a lot of noise happens. And what these networks do is they train themselves on what is an earthquake and what isn't. And they are finding millions and millions of really imperceptibly small earthquakes that kind of light up hidden fault lines like a flare. So the, really, the, the, the strongest use I've seen in this field is to help scientists work out where all of the faults are, including ones that may not have moved for a long time, so are harder to kind of detect, exactly like the ones in Morocco. So I think it's a promising thing, but like it's not, it's not going to be a panacea, I don't think, for like earthquake forecasting. That will require some sort of scientific revelation. <laughs> in the couple of minutes I have left, let's talk about how do you protect yourself if you feel there's an earthquake coming or there's a... You know, you, you live in, a, in an earthquake-prone neighborhood. 
Right. So the advice does vary in different parts of the world because of things like building codes. But on the West Coast and broadly speaking, the best advice is to drop cover and hold on. So that means if you feel shaking, even if you're not sure how powerful the earth is going to be, you drop to the floor and you go under something that's relatively rigid, like a, a strong table or some sort of alcove or something that would shield your head from falling debris. You then hold on and wait until the shaking stops. Like, you know, sometimes you might think the earthquake's over, but it's not. So you have to kind of be patient with it. So broadly speaking, that's the best advice. But the the other thing I would say is, especially if you live in the West Coast, is download apps or make sure your phone is able to get um, alerts from the US Geological Survey shake alert system. But basically what it does is there's, there's seismometers all over the West Coast. And if enough of them detect an earthquake and their autonomous systems quickly process that and it's above a certain magnitude, it will warn people in the area an earthquake is coming, you better get to cover. And it may sound like you wouldn't have any time at all, but the speed of telecommunications is the speed of light, and that's faster than the speed of seismic waves, even though they're really, really fast. So if you live 50 miles away from the epicenter, it may give you a valuable like five, six, seven second lead, which could save your life. Robin, I want to thank you for sharing your reporting with us. Very informative. You're very welcome. Anything to help. Dr. Robin George Andrews, volcanologist and science journalist based in the UK. And our thoughts go out to the victims in Morocco.